Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I'm so excited. Today, I'm, am I interviewing? I guess I'm interviewing my good friend and man coach, coach, human coach. Yep. Is that the right? I'm a man, human coach. <laughs> I coach anything with a heartbeat. <laughs> um, my good friend, Ben Goreski, who is the owner and leader and writer and all things with the Evolving Man podcast. And I've had the pleasure of being on there three times now, hey? I think we've done three episodes, yeah. So now that I started a podcast, I can do some reciprocity. Yes. Right. We always sure. have the best jam sessions. And they're on all subjects sort of more, I would say more masculine focused. Yes. Um, because Ben's work is very much focused on helping men. Yeah. And I definitely, I have some resistance to the word interview. I definitely do. I like. How about jam session? That's good. Is that better? I used to be in a band. So I, <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I can, it's like we have drums, but we're talking. Yeah. I can vibe with jam session. Yeah. So, and you also have the website evolvingman.ca. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your work. Let the people know. All right. Here's what I'm into. My history is is generally in, in the counseling profession. And I spend a lot of time working with addicts. Uh, I have an addictions counseling degree. It's very taxing, intense work. Yeah, I bet. Uh, but over the last few years, I, I did take some take a break from that, and uh, I have my own journey of recovery from addiction. You know, over the last five, six, seven years, it's been a real sort of change of direction, and I've got into a lot of other modalities of healing and coaching and that kind of stuff. And especially over the last three years, really got into transpersonal work. Uh, shadow work. I've Explain learned. shadow to people. Okay. So shadow work, um, you can look up shadow work. Um, yeah, Wikipedia probably has a page on shadow work, but it, it, was, it was invented by Carl Jung. And the idea is that there are parts of your psyche that, you know, not appropriate, we deem not appropriate. And we shove those parts of our psyche away. We reject them completely. A big one in our culture that's appropriate to shove into the closet is anger. Um, especially Canadian culture. We're so polite here. And Sorry, what? We're yeah. really, excuse me, pardon <laughs> totally. me. We're really out of touch with uh, with our anger. Um, we rarely even protest anything in our government. Like that's a clear sign that people are that out of touch. We have with. a cultural <laughs> aversion to actually sharing boundaries. Yes. Standards. Yeah, yeah. We are afraid to offend. There's no doubt about that. And you can always tell a Canadian when they travel because even when they hold the door open for you, they're like, sorry. And you're like, yeah, uh, but thank you. Sorry for being in your way. I apologize. <laughs> it's so Canadian. Yeah. Um, so shadow work and shadow work is, is the process of reclaiming some parts. Of like getting a look at the, the parts where you might hold shame or where you don't even acknowledge. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So just sort of digging around in your mind and exposing parts that, that initially, you know, shadow work can be really uncomfortable because you feel like you're doing something wrong mm. by just expressing that, that part of yourself. But Obviously, it's very liberating because you actually feel more like a whole person when you've, you know, successfully done some kind of shadow work process. So that breath work, really a lot of men's work over the last couple of years. I've really been digging yeah, into men's work. Really cool stuff in there. Yeah, I'm I'm working with uh, the Samurai Brotherhood in Vancouver here, which is an organization that's spreading. And um, if anybody knows the Mankind Project or 
uh, groups like that. We're, we're doing similar stuff. It's, it's men connecting to each other and, and using each other for a source of support and, and, and healing and, you know, like healthy, challenging type of atmosphere. And it's, it's really changed my life. It's changed my game. And it's definitely like, it's what's needed right now for, for men. So that's the stuff I'm into. I coach men, I run men's groups and, uh, I do, I still do work around addiction, yeah. uh, one-on-one and, and sometimes in a group format. So yeah, I'm, I'm stoked that to be on the other side of things here with you and, uh, being on your show, I've really enjoyed our conversations and, uh, let's just call it a conversation. Okay. We're about to have another conversation <laughs> slash jam session. Um, so in your journey of recovery, do you mind if I ask what, of course. what were you addicted to? Escape. escape. That's what I say I was addicted yeah. to because escape from <sighs> an escape of all kinds. My feelings. My, yeah. I was, I, I needed to escape my normal waking reality because it was painful. And I really like that answer to the question yeah, like because, because in this culture, people want to know what substance or what process you were addicted to. And the question implies that it matters basically, right? Yeah, it matters what point. you're addicted to. That's a good point. And it, it doesn't because, you know, I had a guy this morning text me, random guy from the internet who's in a group that I'm a part of. Um, and he said, Hey man, do you think masturbation is addictive? I know porn can be, but what do you think about masturbation? And I said, of course, of course, masturbation yeah. can be addictive. It, elicits a pleasure response. It makes you <laughs> yeah. feel good. Pretty much anything that makes Using you feel good. Using my credit card makes me feel good. Oh right? yeah. yeah. And you know, there's spendaholics anonymous, yeah. right? Like yeah. this is a thing. Well, so that's why I think it's so, I mean, we were just talking about this briefly before we started uh, recording the podcast, but talking about the idea of like what we choose as our vice is we all have addictions. Just some of them are more socially acceptable addictions. You know, some of them are like, yeah. you know, shopping or exercise, you know, yeah. you get a reward of a fit body and people will celebrate you. So mm -hmm. they're very much, but you know, as you said, that word escape, I like that because all of them are an escape from something from mm -hmm. pain, from a pain of, of sorts. Yeah. So for you, you were running, you said you were escaping from just my pain. Yeah. yeah. I was just, I was, I was escaping my pain. Like I grew up in a home that wasn't really safe. Like, you know, it was physically safe most of the time, but basically my older brother was, was a bully and was really dominant, domineering, very unhappy person. He was a very unhappy person. And so myself and my parents were always dealing with sort of the fallout of his emotions and just like mm -hmm. tantrums and, and like trying to get out of the way, you know? And of course my parents trying to help him and God bless them. And so, and I was a really sensitive kid. So, so I, I was wounded a lot just by his behavior and through his attacks and never feeling supported or safe by him mm -hmm. or most of the time not feeling supported. Classic abusive relationship where like, there were times where things felt great with him and I felt like he really loved me. And then he would just turn his back on me and, and screw me over. Right. Mm. So unstable in that way. Right. So I had all these wounds, all of this, like now I call it trauma. I used to be adverse to calling it trauma because I was never like really physically abused or sexually. But now I realize like there were plenty of traumatic events in my childhood. So I was, you know, disconnected from myself, from my emotions, in a lot of pain, wondering, you know, 
what it was all about, what it was for. And truthfully, like my parents were pretty emotionally illiterate at the time. And I don't think they would be insulted if they heard this podcast and heard me say that because since then, like they've, we've all healed and they can see like, oh, wow, we, we were carrying our programming from our parents and damn, we really didn't know how to deal with our emotions, nor did we know know how to deal with our kids' emotions, right? So that's the pain. Like I, I was lonely. I was scared. I was, didn't know where I fit in in the world. I had this like hole inside of me that, that I needed to fill. And truthfully, like if we're talking about masturbation, like when I found masturbation, I was all over it because <laughs> I mean, I remember the first time I came, that was a very memorable moment. I think for every human, that's a very memorable yeah. moment, but maybe for boys, cause it's such a, you know, you have a wet dream or, you know, I was waiting for that moment to have a wet dream. I yeah. remember the countdown people would tell me about theirs and I'd be like, man, I haven't had this dream where you woke up, wake up yeah. soaking and it's mar- you're marinating in heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, so like for you, you found masturbation and that was the one first escape. Yeah, it was the first escape. And and then, you know, at the time I, my, my, my older brother had already been involved with drugs and I was like wondering what the deal was. Like, why is he involved with drugs? And like, I knew drugs were bad and like <laughs> yeah. this kind of stuff. And, but I started getting curious about it. And, you know, I saw the, some friends around me who were smoking pot and drinking mm-hmm. and I got curious about that. And eventually when I met the right people and I was able to make the right requests, I, I got what I was looking for. And yeah, when I first got drunk and when I first smoked pot and got high, it was like, ah, like the <laughs> gates of heaven opened up. You're like your pain got numbed for mm-hmm. a moment. Yeah. It felt so good. And I remember like, I think this doesn't necessarily happen to all people, but like the first day that I got high, I was like, I'm going to do, why would I not do this? <laughs> forever. Yeah. Every day for the rest of my life. I like kind of made a commitment at that moment that this was my solution. So, I mean, that's definitely someone who's looking for a solution. Right? When you and you don't have any others, you know, yeah. like like even when you were saying earlier that labeling your experience because if you were to put your experience on a scale of worst possible childhoods to best possible childhoods, there's so many ways you can invalidate your own trauma. And even to use the word trauma, then now gives it this, but you know, like everybody has forms of trauma, Yes, you know, and when we can just acknowledge that, like, you know, the way our parents spoke to us or how our brother was or sister was or whatever it is, even at school, you know, you can experience trauma in so many different ways Mm -hmm. and no one else gets to give you permission to have the trauma you get. Like that's your permission to give to yourself. Yeah. There should be no, like you're in or you're out of the trauma group. There's no yeah, comparing right. traumas. There's no hierarchy of trauma. <laughs> There's no, it's just like, it's yours and that's okay. Yeah. So in, in the like first uh, moment of marijuana and alcohol, how long till you began the journey of recovery and what got you there? Oh, like, um, it may have been just over a year. I can't remember if it was a year or two years. Damn, you went fast. It was a year, yeah. like a year and nine months or something I was using. For. But I was like high like every day. How old were you at that point? I started when I was 13 and I entered rehab when I was 15. Damn, you do fast work. Yeah. So I probably could have lasted out there using for a bit longer for sure. But um, my brother had already been tossed into rehab by that time. And 
my parents were in a situation where they were like, where I was in the home, they knew I was using. And at that treatment center, what they do is um, they, they send your kid away and they spent, they do the first three steps in the treatment center and they don't come home. And then when they get to step four, they come home and they start bringing kids home into the, into the house and they start hosting. So in the beginning, you're hosted at other people's homes. And then when you get far along, you start hosting. And so they were like, okay, we can't bring kids into our home if Ben's using. So the fire got lit in my family, basically. And when they saw an opportunity to get me into that treatment center for like what they call an assessment, um, (laughs) they got me in there. terminology. And at that place in Alberta, it's called ARC. They will take kids against their will. If they're, if the parents give permission, the parents give permission. And if they, if obviously if they qualify as an addict, so they do. And you were using marijuana and alcohol. Yeah. That was for the most part. Wow. Yeah. It's psychedelic here and there, but honestly, if someone had given me access to other stuff, I would have gone for it. Yeah. I was, I was a little apprehensive at the time to smoke crack or do Coke or something like that. And I didn't have a lot of money as a 15 year old. So (laughs) I was really relegated to those two substances (laughs) at the time. And when I got into, I ended up in treatment. And when I got in there, I had all this like shame about not being enough of a drug addict compared to my compatriots there. Like you weren't a high performing, crackhead, the best possible drug head. I wasn't a crackhead. I'd never stolen a car. I hadn't done heroin before. I was still a virgin. I hadn't had sex. And so I was, so like, was like a lot of shame of like, you, like you had a good childhood. What are you doing in here? Sort of it was thing? Like, or like, it was like you also didn't, you weren't the best possible one you could be. Yeah. The joke the their joke was like, uh, you smoke pot three times. You ended up in rehab. Like, oh, not, so they even shame addict. like your, your identification as an addict Yeah, or talk, even other people's identification of you as an addict. Yeah. Talk about comparing traumas. So it was like a comparison huh. of, of my addiction to their addiction. And, and like, they got me for sure. I was like, how, how am I a real addict compared to all of these guys over here that have, especially when you're 15, 16. Yeah. You know, you're like, uh, yeah, you're right. Like your life has fallen apart and you've stolen cars and done bad things. And you're like, I smoked weed in my parents' house. Yeah. And they knew about it. Yeah. And but I was sitting next to a 14 year old and a 13 year old in treatment too. So there was that. Wow. And so you, took on sobriety then at such yeah. a young age. Yeah. So how the hell have you, cause you're now what? 34, you said? Yeah. 34. Yeah. So, so it was like, it's, Damn, it was an interesting man. process for the six, first six months I resisted and was like, I don't want to be here. Fuck this place. I'm not an addict and yada, yada. It, not the first six months, but I'd say the first three months. And what they do there is they get you to just talk about your past, talk about your mm-hmm your times using drugs. And then they ask you questions about, you know, well, what was your mindset? Like, what's your pain? Like, you know, they get you to expose your pain slowly. And when I realized that my pain was the same as everyone else's pain and that I was like definitely on the same trajectory everyone else was on. Yeah. I was able to, to project forward and just sort of like see my addiction for what it really was, you know, which is going back to what I was saying about addiction, not being about the substance or anything. If you're in uh, enough of a wounded place that your reward system gets hijacked by a substance or a process. That's an addiction. And man, I've definitely been there. I think our phones can do that so easily for us these days. Mm-hmm. But I think of like, as a kid who came from a pretty good family to, you know, and parents who 
I was even more blessed in some ways. My dad's really emotionally illiterate. My mom is, you know, like my dad even more so. So, mm -hmm. you know, for a man, that's really blessing. That's lucky. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I didn't know how to process emotional pain and rejection. As soon as I could drink alcohol, I found like I finally had the courage of, because going through junior high, I remember in grade eight, I don't think I've ever shared this on the podcast, not because I didn't want to, just doesn't come up. Um, <laughs> Because I'm an open book. <laughs> in grade eight, I got called a porker oh. by a kid. Yeah. And I remember like like my stomach just falling. Yeah. You know, my heart just like crushed. Yeah. And I, th it wasn't that I didn't know I'd been kind of chubby at that moment. I mean, I'd been rewarded by sugar and chocolate milk, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had an allowance. So Daily. when yeah. you're not given the proper nutritional education and also controls around those things, couple that with liking sugar and dopamine, it doesn't do great things. Mm -hmm. And I remember after that, when I was in like grade 11 was the first time I drank, that was in grade eight. I then basically developed, basically, I developed a non-diagnosed um, eating disorder in the summer of grade eight and grade nine, where I would go to my grandma's house who had slim fast. Oh, slim fast. I would starve myself. Yikes. I would mountain bike every day my brother mountain biked and my brother had a beard in grade nine and every girl liked my brother. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I got to do what John's doing. Cause he's fucking, he's got a beard. I still it. don't have a full beard. He's got a crazy, he, he farts and a beard grows. Mm -hmm. And he, um, <laughs> hope you're listening. That was a good one. Um, <laughs> he, so I started mountain biking, but obsessively and I got really fit, fit, right. Mm -hmm. In quotations. Mm -hmm. And I was drinking my grandma's slim fast because I knew that if I drank it, it would make me feel full. Yeah. But I was, you know, at that time, then I obsessed about my body and men's health magazine and all those things. But when I discovered alcohol, I discovered courage mm -hmm. to be able to finally like talk to girls. And I yeah. experienced a lot of rejection. Classic. You know? Yeah. I'm and sure 70% of the people listening to this can relate to that. Right. And, and like, you don't know what the fuck you're doing as a kid. You have no idea. And everyone pretends like they know what they're doing, mm -hmm. but no one does. So yeah. if you're a kid listening to this, just so you know, it's normal to not know what you're doing. Be no and if you're an adult, it's normal to not <laughs> know what you're doing. But yeah, I found that when I experienced really great heartbreak at 19, that's when my relationship to alcohol became much more like blackout. It was an escape from real deep breakup pain, like you know, I think it, at the time, because we didn't have the internet, really, you know, we had it, but I wasn't Googling, like, what to do with heartbreak. Yeah. I didn't know that you could end up in such a deep, painful psychological state from heartbreak. Mm -hmm. But, man, I met the bottom yeah. for probably a year where my only solace was in. I didn't smoke weed, really. So my only solace was in the bottom of a pint glass, mm -hmm. many pint glasses, and just waking up with shame and you know, repeat the cycle, repeat the cycle, never deal with the pain. And I was listening to Gabor Mate the other day, talking to Russell Brand on his podcast. Mm. And he said, what the drug, you'll never know what the drug gives the addict till you experience the high the addict experiences, which you never can. Mm -hmm. He said, the drug gives you the wholeness. Mm -hmm. And so people always want to quit when they're high or when they're in that space, or they mostly do because they've experienced the wholeness that the drug provides. And I thought to myself, like, what is yeah. it that I reach out for? And I thought, wow, in just like the action of reaching for food that isn't good for me or like beer or whatever, 
uh, in excess when I did that. Mm -hmm. It was like by reaching and grabbing the thing, I created the space within me that needed it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the action of choosing it actually made the dependence on it. Mm -hmm. But if I never chose it, and so like this is a very long diatribe way of saying, how does someone actually sit through like you're 15, you're in a recovery center and you know, you're being told to sit with your pain. But like most of us haven't sat with our pain. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing that you just said. Cause like we all like, there's a common misconception that if, if you do heroin, you'll get addicted to it. Yeah. That like heroin is addictive and that it makes addicts out of everybody that it touches. Yeah. But the truth is like something like 10% of people who use heroin ever end up being like a long-term user, long-term user. And there isn't a, there is obviously like a physical addictive component, like of all, of, all opiates, stimulating. Yeah. Yeah. But opiates, especially yeah. that there's a real tolerance that builds up in your system. And then when you're coming off of opiates, there's that withdrawal, uh, that is like crazy difficult to deal yeah. with. But my point is going back to, it's not the drug that you're addicted to. It's not the process that you're addicted to. There is a, a level of pain yeah. that you can't deal with in yourself. And yes, the more that you reach for something outside of, outside of you to fill that hole that the pain has created, uh, the more you reinforce the pattern, but the addiction more lies in the pain and the disconnection from yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what Gabor um, talks about as at, at, a, at the core, what addiction really is, is it, it's a disconnection from yourself. And so when you can reconnect to your pain in a, let's just say a natural way, um, and you can allow it to do what it wants to do in your body and your system. And when you reconnect to yourself, that's where you can find recovery. This is why AA says that the entire point of their program is to create a spiritual awakening or spiritual experience for people where they're connected to something that's greater than themselves. Yeah. And, and so, and thus themselves connecting thus to them themselves, themselves. Right? like through the connection to other and community, yeah. the mirror that the stories provide. I don't know if, if you haven't been to AA, it's like going to Ted talks. Right. Honestly, I went to it with my sister and I was like, God damn, this is actually pretty inspiring. Yeah. And and is part of that process then seeing yourself in the story of other people so you don't feel so much shame and isolation? Yeah, for sure. Yeah? Yeah, man. And then what about the process then like for you, and I could speak to mine, but I'd like to hear yours first. What are some ways in your work with men and people, humans, um, humans, <laughs> are you, what ways do you find effective for people to confront and um, at first, how do they get to the place where they stop the addiction, you know, the thing. Yeah. And then how do they confront the pain? What's the best way for someone to, because for the people listening, it's like, I'm going to guess that the majority of us, you know, have unprocessed mm -hmm. stuff. And we're like, I do shop a lot or mm -hmm. I do use my phone, especially now that yeah. the iPhone tells you how much you use your phone. Like, <laughs> yeah, it God does. damn it. I could be a CEO <laughs> of a business here. Um, so, so, just off that subject, yeah. like what do you, what comes to you right away when you think of that? Okay. So the first thing is like with, with a larger addiction and, and a process that you can cut out of your life without totally, you know, like getting rid of your phone is, is difficult, 
But like, let's, let's say we're talking about uh, something that's a little bit easier to deal with, like alcohol, gambling, yeah. Yeah. marijuana, even sex could work. Cause you can go a year. You know, Casual you, sex is totally you, an you addiction. You can go a year without sex, you know, like you can do abstinence. So y- you need to quit the thing, right? You need to get off of it. I had to quit that too. Some people. Intimacy. Yeah. Some people advocate like, oh, well, just like, why don't you move from where you are? This like hyper using addictive space and just move into a moderate space. Like that's what all addicts want. They're like, geez, can like, I just that's move? great advice. Yeah. I'd love to just like, could, to just relegate this to weekends. Could I move my drinking to the weekends? Like, could, could you teach me that? Like people have asked me that hundreds of times. <laughs> no, I can't teach you that. Like I can't move you from like the most extreme side over to this like middle ground. Like you have to quit at least for a solid chunk of time in order to quit. You have to have had enough of where you're at. You have to have enough pain. You know, people are, people always ask like, how can we convince this person to quit? You know, like I want this guy to change his life. I want this, this gal to change her life and quit this thing. How do we convince him to quit? And that, that whole thing is another can of worms because the truth is the person has to have enough pain. Right. They have to, and and it doesn't always have to be pain. It could be, uh, it likely will be, (laughs) but it could be the desire for something different connected to something more. You're right. You know, it's a, you have, you can't save people from the bottom because they need to skid. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, I think in something lighter, like, you know, if we're talking about drug and alcohol addiction versus like addicted to, you know, hooking up, Mm -hmm. you know, I definitely had to go to, you know, I guess my rock bottom was like just seeing how empty I felt when I was connecting. And it was like really feeling the emptiness of who I thought I was being versus who I was being. Yeah. And that gap. Whew, yeah. It when you're aware, that hits you. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to end up on the street. Yeah. Right? You don't have to be homeless to hit your bottom. The bottom, again, is an internal process mm. like you just described. Mm. It's, it's like. It's your bottom. I've had enough of this. Right. And yeah. in some way you hit a type of bottom there when that kid called you a porker, you felt that pain and you were like, whoa, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of this pain of being called a porker. I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to go over here to this extreme over here and I'm going to live this extreme life. And that's going to solve my problem. Right. Who else has done that? Like where you experience some feedback from the world, whether it's getting fired from a job or getting someone breaking up with you or someone saying something insulting to you and you reorient your entire life. So you never have to feel that emotion yeah. again. Yeah. Right. That's true. You protect yourself from that known pain. Mm-hmm. So that, that was kind of a bottom, right? Yeah. And so with addiction, you have to have enough of, of your current way of living that you're willing to make a huge change and let go of the one big thing that feels like your only life preserver. So it's like you're letting go of the one floaty in the in the giant ocean and you you're going to like go swim out into the unknown. And it's scary. So a lot of people are unwilling to let go of their their addiction and a lot of people will also immediately look for something else that looks like a life preserver. So like, okay, cocaine is my problem, but I don't want to let go of alcohol. It's not a problem. And I smoke pot to get to sleep. And I'm not willing to let go of that either because it's not a problem either. Right. And so we make it about the drug so that we can go and use this thing over here to soothe our pain. As opposed to about the escape and how are you escaping? Yeah. 
you know, I, I remember when I used to work in the area of oncology, they talk about how when someone di is diagnosed with cancer that they get, you know, like, I forget what the term is, but it like a survivalist, survivalist, I forget what that mm -hmm. is, but it's like a motivation. I forget what the word is. Someone I'm sure will message me after this, yeah. <laughs> remind me, and I'll know by the time this comes out, yeah. but it's that they all of a sudden have this motivation to live and change and connect with people they never connected with. And, right. Mm -hmm. And I always thought to myself, it's so fascinating that we need to know our expiry date in some sense mm -hmm. to know that we should live every moment so much more valuably, valuably. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, like, this was about eight years ago, I remember thinking to myself, like, how can you, in a way, artificially create a rock bottom for people? Mm -hmm. But I guess, in a sense, that's what an intervention is. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to bring up intervention. So, you know, as the person who has a relationship with the addict, you do have some clout in their life. You do have some pull in their life. And um, how you use that skillfully actually can have an impact on on their bottom, right? And so when you watch Intervention and you That's see- a great show. I used to be so addicted good, to right? that show, yeah. When you watch that show, you see how the, the, the therapists there go, okay, who are all the meaningful people in this person's life and how can we leverage their relationship with the addict to give our best possible push for them to get clean? And so you kind of turn up the heat on the person. You say like, okay, first of all, we're removing support for your addiction. We're going we're gonna to stop supporting you in this way and this way and this way, yeah. because this is actually just codependency. This is us like, this is our addiction. Yeah. This is yeah. me giving you money because I'm afraid that if I don't, that you'll go somewhere else to get the money and that you'll die. And I have to let go of that because it's not serving anybody, right? You're draining my bank account. You're still an addict. <laughs> <laughs> I'm addicted to trying to help you and fix you. Yeah. Yeah. So they do that stuff. And then, and then they say like, okay, also read these letters where you say like, this is how you've hurt me. You know, this is how your addiction has impacted me. So the person sees the, the fallout of their addiction. That's way bigger than them. So that's the rock bottom. And so, yeah. And you're raising the person's bottom so that it hits them, right? Uh, Cause it's an emotional interesting, thing. Yeah. And so they do that in AA as well. It used to be thought that a person had to like hit some kind of physical rock bottom, which is like on the street or having everybody reject them and being totally outcast from society. My God. And then they realized that what you could do is what they did with me in treatment, ask you a series of questions and have you process your life in a way where you realize where you're really at. Your mind is hijacked already. Uh -huh. And so when you realize that, you know, like you were saying, the difference between who I want to be and who I am, when you have that moment of clarity, that's a rock bottom. Yeah. So going back to your question of like, okay, so what do we do with with, with someone like, how do, how do we, you know, make some progress here? First, you, you do what you can to manifest a moment of clarity. You take a really honest account of what's happening in your life, what you want to change, what the difference is between who you want to be and who you are now. That's, that's really big because I think the part that I see most people struggle with and I struggled with, that's why I see most people <laughs> struggling mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm is my first step that was so hard, not alcohol related for me that my addiction more became women, but the, the, and, and fleeting connection mm -hmm. is I had to face who I was actually being mm -hmm. and sit in the realities of that. And that was something I had danced around and are intellectualized and, but I'm not interested in a relationship right now. And I'm honest about that. Mm -hmm. But I realized that I was really out of alignment with my core desire, which was to have a fulfilling relationship. 
And so when I met that moment and it was only introduced to me by someone else who was like, you're so full of shit. Like you say you want a relationship, but you're just, you're the guy to go to if you want a casual relationship. And I was like, oh, damn. Hmm. Thank you for that. That stuff helps with us getting to that moment of clarity. That's why the intervention room is so good. Yeah, I felt the pain of that truth because mm-hmm. it was true, right? And I could have said, no, no. But I mean, she was the girl who I was hanging up with. So mm-hmm. she knew the truth. <laughs> it was it's pretty clear. So many people in your, having people in your life who are willing to give you that level of honesty is a blessing in the end, but your addiction sure doesn't like it. Yeah. So what you'll see in addicts' lives is they will have pushed away most of the people in their lives who are willing to give them the honest truth, mm-hmm. right? That's part I, of the strategy. Of- yeah of turning away from the pain. Alcoholics will have a lot of alcoholic friends and not a lot of like, quote, normal friends who are outside the addiction circle because alcoholics can reinforce each other's behaviors. Just like, I mean, true of any choices. Yep. You know, if you're someone who does drugs and all of a sudden you want to decide to get off drugs, you can't go hanging out with Tommy on Saturday who likes to do lines of cocaine off the bathroom. I don't know why people do cocaine in bathrooms, by the way. That just seems very non-hygienic. No, I think it's just a convenience factor. <laughs> yeah, it must be because there's no, uh, that is, out of all the places you could do it, that is literally, I was waiting for the bathroom in New York and I was like, this person's taking a long time. Yeah. And I said to the girl in front of me, I'm like, I'm so happy you're next. And she's like, they're probably just doing cocaine. And I'm like, oh, what? People do cocaine in bathrooms? And she was like, oh, <laughs> you're from Canada. And I was like, Oh, wow. I had no. Yeah, yeah that's funny. First priority, get the drug in your system. Second priority, privacy, because, yeah. you know, it's not Judgment. super appropriate. And uh, those are the only two priorities. What's amazing when you up level, and, and so um, thank you for sharing all that because I think it's so relevant to all the people listening on some in some way, right? Mm-hmm. They know an addict, they might be an addict of some sort. And, and I say that in ownership of like all the ways you can be addicted, right? If you can own that truth that addictions show up in socially acceptable ways and not, then we can start to see even how our phone is the first thing we turn to or mm-hmm. how we want more likes and we change the way we pose on social media or mm-hmm. whatever it is. So- and we talked, we just touched on this before we started the podcast, but this, you know, I really, and I don't know, I'd love to get your opinion on this, but I find like often men, although I don't want to genderize, men tend to choose much more destructive addictions, you know, like, mm-hmm. or maybe we're just more outwardly destructive with our addictions. We certainly are that. Men yeah. are, are certainly more prone to outward destruction just by our nature. You know, we love to smash stuff. We love to... We're just more prone to aggression. Right? Yeah, um, it's a socially acceptable behavior, um, although not not when it's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. But it is. You can be angry or you can be happy as a man. You know, for the most part, those mm-hmm. are the two feelings that get um, some acceptance. And mm-hmm. as a woman, you can't be too angry or too emotional. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I'd be interested. I actually don't know a lot of the statistics around like cocaine addicts, like primary drug of choice, cocaine addict, alcoholic, cannabis sex gambling like what the spectrum of men to women is yeah and everything in between but i think honestly in in sex addiction circles it's like it's probably pretty even yeah that makes a lot of men and a lot of women addicted to sex just in different different ways and all different spectrums you know i certainly find like in the conversation about because i find very much one of those addict um, codependent relationships is people who identify as an empath and those who they identify in their own diagnoses as a narcissist. Mm-hmm. 
But you know, that fit so well together. Yeah, they do. But it's like, there's very much as a social norm, we've made it. And don't get me wrong. I have so much love for people who have experienced the pain of dating someone who's a sociopath or a narcissist, mm-hmm. but it certainly doesn't run as rampant as that word does. Certainly not. Right. It's like a hot word right now, narcissism. And it's just like, when I think, you know, it's like when someone says, well, I don't have, you know, I'm an empath. And I'm like, just because you identify with that doesn't mean you do not have the responsibility to have boundaries. It actually, if you identify as an empath, you better have fucking good boundaries. Mm-hmm. Because if you identify as emotionally open and sensitive, I just find that there's so much overlap in the language with um, those terms, with anxious and avoidance, with mm-hmm. uh, um, attachment styles, with codependence, mm-hmm. you know, addict and person trying to heal the addict. Mm-hmm. It's all this. I, I do find because um, the role that we have both socialized and you could maybe argue biologically, um, women are more the caretaker, more mm-hmm. the community connector more the like wanting to keep people safe mm-hmm. um, that there is more of a role of wanting to heal and help people. Mm-hmm. They certainly go into more uh, caregiving roles like nursing, yep. you know, those types of things. Yep. So yeah, I'm wondering in the context of, of masculine and feminine or, or just in relationship, we were talking earlier about this idea of like, and I think a lot of, because, you know, a lot of the people who listen to this are women or, or some version of, mm-hmm. um, I don't mean to be heteronormative, but the what happens when because I feel like there is a larger amount of men who don't have good access to their emotional ling you know mm-hmm. they're not great emotional linguists yeah and we don't know we haven't been we've been socialized out of language yeah. for emotions but what ha- what is the detriment and I think the Me Too movement is a pretty good expression of what happens when. Uh, masculinity. I know the word that people want to use and use all the time is toxic, turns toxic. But you and I both don't really love that word because language is so important in how we frame the world. So it's like, what happens when masculinity takes an immature and unconscious turn? And you work with men Mm -hmm. all the time. So like, where do you see that? How do you see it? Where does it start? And this could be in the context of a woman too. So, but let's just stay in the subject of men. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we're in a very masculinized society. You know, I think men are certainly, (laughs) at least in our society, very predisposed to not being in touch with our emotions. You know, our dads and our dad's dads had no emotional intelligence for the most part. I do feel like there's a whole generation, a couple generations of men, everyone before the seventies. Yeah who were not encouraged to have an emotion. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, my, my dad actually is a pretty emotional guy and it's relatively emotionally intelligent as far as men go. But yeah, in general, you know, pretty much all men were not educated on, on how to be in control uh, or understand their, not, not be in control, but understand and have a relationship with their emotions. And, and that sort of um, belief structure was integrated with the society, which was male dominated for so long, right? Like women have only been able to vote for like 60 years or something, right? Um, 60, 70 years. And so we also shoved women's emotions into the corner. Yeah. And the truth is like having a partner who works with women, so Same. many women are have very little relationship with their emotions and are very cut off from their emotions. Yeah. So it's a problem that's on, on both sides of the fence, but um, you know, we want to talk about what 
what the unconscious masculine looks like. It's guys who don't understand what they're feeling. When they're feeling something, it mutates quickly into aggression, avoidance, rejection. Shutting down. Yeah, like the big shutdown. We're massive shutter downs. We shut her down. We shove it in a corner. And and then, you know, the classic move is the eventual blow up. Yeah. The eventual the blow only up. way we know how to be heard is to jump to some form of significance through aggression. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I, going back to the, the women thing too, like I, th- I think that's also pretty classic, you know, yeah. when women denying uh, what they really want, not speaking their truth, not acknowledging their emotions because it's not safe to feel for, for whatever well, reason. They're going to be called too emotional, yeah. too needy, too much to this. And men are going to be, you don't talk, you don't share, you don't. And it's like both are actually such interesting opposites. It's a trap. Yeah, yeah. It's a trap. And, and I think men get a lot of, they make, they make the news more because we are, we are just really good at creating big consequences for ourselves. We shoot schools up, we rape, we, um, we get violent, we crash cars into buildings. Like, (laughs) like we just, we're more violent in general and we have, the predisposition to create more destruction in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like men are something more like serial killers, more psychopaths, more. Yeah. Especially when you look at the far end of the spectrum on aggression, yeah. it's like a hundred to one. And, and very few men are responsible for, I think it's something like 5% of the whole population of men are, are, are responsible for the, the majority, if not all violent crime, all the violence. Yeah. Which and, is still a lot. 5% is a lot of men. Mm-hmm. And we're pre, we're also, you know, way more likely to kill ourselves, like lethal means, like women attempt suicide more than men, much more than men. We're just, we're better at it. And we just kill ourselves more. Yeah. (laughs) We complete the job more. So there's that dichotomy. There's, there's that sort of difference between men and women, which shows up as all, a lot of these different issues that we're looking at. Right. I mean, I certainly find like in my work, you know, if you look at my Instagram or my Facebook or any of those, about 85% of my followers are women. If I run an event, uh, about 85% of the attendees are women. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, because often I will read a cynical comment that says, why aren't men commenting on this? Or why, you notice how it's all women. And it's like, well, first off, only 15% of men are getting this on their feed. Mm-hmm. But why is that? Why are men not attuned? Well, first off, men don't want to be seen as following a relationship advice thing because mm-hmm. then they might be seen as not being good at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Secondly, they're not socialized to want to learn that. They're mm-hmm. actually ashamed to be engaged and in touch with that. Yeah. And it's sort of like which comes first, the chicken or the egg. And I think it's both. You know, is that like we don't socialize, we aren't socialized to get in touch with it and be you know, like aggression and power was celebrated for men historically. Mm-hmm. But now I really feel like emotional fluency is the currency of the future yeah. for both genders, for all genders and, and everything in between. That there is like, if you can build your relational awareness, you'll be a better partner and a better man or woman or everything that like, that's where the money is. Yeah, for sure. You know, but like, you know, when men go to extremes, we go to real big extremes, but how do we catch us in the middle? You know, like instead of the, like the attic thing, right? Like going from one extreme to the other, or like when I get called a porker and then I become extremely restrictive Mm -hmm. and there's no balance there. 
So we're like yeah. so shut off to being far too open when we blow up like a pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. So where, you know, like my thing, just solve all of this right now. If yeah. You could, that'd if, be great. If I could, that, that that'd be amazing. Like my, my big thing right now is we need to connect to each other in, in a healthy way. And yeah, I'm frustrated about this too, that like, even on my evolving man, Instagram and Facebook and stuff, same thing. It's like, when I look at the list of incoming followers, it's 90% women. And I appreciate want to learn about men, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. But like, I want more men to be interested, but the truth is I think, well, first of all, engagement is low, especially in that realm on the internet for men, like women yeah. engage more on the internet. They're more yeah. relational and more social. Yeah, that's true. So that makes sense. And <laughs> the other part is like porn, which we don't have to get into, but like that porn is like a large chunk of the internet and it's also inhabited mostly by, by men using it. Yeah. So there's that thing, like when you're engaging with a device, like what, what is going to feed your pleasure pathways more, you know? And your shortcut to what you perceive as connection. Yeah. You know, like VR is certainly going to change that virtual reality. And now you can buy these like crazy lifelike dolls. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, because we're not building the skills to learn how to connect to one another. And I think on the other side of like, I say this with someone as being a man who had, I had to save myself first, you know, mm-hmm. I had to learn my own lack of emotional fluency, you know, like the reason I wanted to learn about relationships, as you know, is from a breakup. And yeah. then it became, why am I so good at selling stuff and communicating, but I can't talk about my feelings. That's not a skill set issue. There's so much more going on. And it was like, I need to uncover what are the subcon. I didn't even know what a subconscious mind was, <laughs> you know, like, or all the programs you get from Disney or your parents or watching your mom and dad interact or watching men interact in the world mm-hmm. and what the news says about men. Mm-hmm. I was so terrified of being controlling that I was a doormat, you know, because I was so afraid of what men can become when they're not mature. Yeah. But then in that, I missed what is a mature man because yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was so sure. afraid of becoming an immature man. I actually became an undeveloped man and it became out in immaturity. I ended up becoming what I was afraid of, you know, in the sense that I lacked boundaries. So then I became addicted to a substance that would allow me to have an outlet mm. that wasn't an outlet, really. Yep. Let's be honest. And this is this is how it goes for so many normal boys who become men. Because look at what we're exposed to. We've got one, if we're lucky, male father figure in our lives. If we're lucky. Right? Right. Yeah. A lot of the world, that guy doesn't, he just fucks off. He's not even there. So then we have teachers in school, which is like, or because of systemic thing. oppression, they're in prison. You know, yeah. like there's so many. Yeah. So I want to acknowledge there's so many there's a avenues lot of, to that and so many systemic parts that are, yeah. we can't break that down in this podcast, but right? <laughs> a lot of fatherless want. kids out there, a yeah. lot of fatherless uh, boys out there who were fatherless. Yes. You know, and yes. that's the conundrum. So there's that. And then you have like your teachers in school, which don't have nearly enough access to you to actually like really have an impression. Like there's the odd teacher who, who's going to like. Yeah, we always really remember the real good one. There's like one you know, or two. It really showed you that you were loved. He respected For a you. moment yeah. or she even sometimes. Yeah. But you're right. A male teacher who guided you with integrity. Mm-hmm. That's rare and awesome when it happens. Yeah. Then you've got like all your dude friends as you move through your life. Their fathers. Who, yeah. And and your your dude friends, like we were talking about, they don't know what the fuck they're doing in life. So, and then you get into university and you're, you know, everybody's drinking and, you know, finding their substances that give them liquid courage, right? They're like, where are boys learning how to be men? 
You know, like there's not enough access. It used to be when we were living in a village or a tribe, you had access to the manosphere, you know, in, in your, like in your that. village, right? Yeah. Like you had other males mentoring you and there was sort of this like shared mentorship going on. And, and we, we just don't have that in a way that has like real impact. Oh, lucky guys have like a really good karate sensei or a really good coach that they work with. I was lucky. I had right? a pretty good soccer coach. Yeah. Those, those guys actually have a huge impact on, on yeah. how boys learn to compete in a, in a honorable way and respect each other, you know, like healthy competition, how to deal with defeat, how to deal with winning respectfully with honor. So there, is, there are those opportunities, but let's just say like there's a huge lack of them in general, right? And so, you know, going back to your question about how could we solve this, my soapbox right now is like we need to connect to each other. And my favorite method these days is like men's groups and women's groups. Yeah. You know, my partner runs a women's group where women connect to each other and they connect to their own femininity and they, they do shadow work. They do uh, like feminine processes and it's triggering for a lot of the women when they first join, because most women have some part of their femininity that they've rejected because it was, they were told that it's not appropriate. Yeah. Especially like bleeding and having your period. Like that's so like, it's just not appropriate to talk about or like Even so men, many women so terrified it. of that. Yeah. I love learning about my partner's period. Me and the endometrium. I love knowing about it. The phases of the That's cycle. Huge mystery. Listen, <laughs> men take a curiosity or same day, you know, take a yeah. curiosity in your partner's period. And it will, it will also help you adapt to the cycles that are occurring in your household. If you happen to live with your partner. So there's that like, yeah, if you're you know, wondering every month, why things get a little different, <laughs> yeah. you should maybe pay attention to the phases of the, of the cycle. There are phases, which shows curiosity and interest, you know, and that, you know, I remember reading something uh, not that long ago where a guy was saying, when your partner sends you something to read and you don't read it, you were saying, I'm not interested in what you're sending me and it's not a priority. Mm -hmm. I deal with the conversation a lot. You know, I don't work one-on-one -on -one with clients anymore, but yeah. when I did, a lot of the conversation was, I want to come see you, female. I want to come work with you. My partner doesn't. Mm -hmm. Or because the man doesn't want to see a therapist or a coach. I'm not a therapist, but like doesn't want to see a coach, doesn't want to see a therapist, mm -hmm. doesn't want to go do the work. And that is, uh, you know, I, I know there's a socializing issue there that they're afraid of being seen as not good at the thing, but we have to put our humility, we have to take humility and just make it a forefront mm -hmm. of a principle in relationship. If, if you're not willing to hear that you're not good at some things, especially the results you're getting in relationship will really tell you if you're not, <laughs> mm -hmm. then you're not going to create different outcomes in your relationships. Yeah. And I feel like as men, we have a much harder time turning towards not being good enough for our partners where we feel like them wanting to see a therapist or a coach means we're broken. Yeah. We're super anxious about admitting failure Yeah, and um, about not being good at relationship. Like my ultimate dream is to be a fantastic provider, a fantastic uh, husband in many ways, like a hero for my woman. And when she gives me negative feedback, 
or she tells me I'm not doing something well, I usually act like that feedback didn't land and <laughs> like, uh, like, I don't know what she's talking about and like, it didn't hurt my feelings. And internally I'm dying because <laughs> I've, I'm hearing you're a bad man. Yeah. You're a bad partner and you're a failure essentially. Yeah. Like that's, that's, that's all the shit that goes on in my head. And it, I think a lot of men can relate to that. And we are predisposed to that kind of thinking. We are predisposed to uh, not speaking to uh, where things aren't going okay in our lives, not reaching out for help. It's like, yeah, the research is something like we turn to our partner 70% of the time for everything. Uh-huh. And our partner turns to us, a female partner turns to a man 30% of the time because she goes to her girlfriends. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because yeah. guys don't have any close guy friends anymore. So when our relationships <laughs> yeah. end, our support system goes with it. Yeah. That means we better fucking show up for our relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, unlike you that I, I really put a lot of value in being a good partner and being a good provider, but I also see providing us as you do, I know. Um, as something different than monetary too. Cause mm-hmm. if I place it on money, I, w- I would have not always been a great right. provider, but the, that idea of being like, I remember when I was told that I get really defensive and I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like, wait. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, uh, but I remember reading the antidote to defensiveness. Huh, that's is, a book. In, no, oh, no, no, no. Okay. This is a quote. A, <laughs> I remember reading what the antidote to defensiveness is from John Gottman's mm-hmm. research. And it is to reply and say, and this is true for men and women, we just happen to be more defensive when it comes to relational failure for the most part, mm-hmm. is, and failure being just like, we're not doing good enough, right. um, is to say, I can see some truth in that. And when I first did that, I remember it felt like I was eating my underwear. It was like, oh. <laughs> Like I could see some truth in though, because yeah. now I just acknowledge the feedback. But what I noticed was I was on the other side of a conversation I'd never been on. Like now my partner was like, oh, oh, you want to hear more? You want to hear more about that thing? And I built a bridge where I normally built a wall, but I certainly still have, there's a child in me that goes, no, but there, the adult yeah. shows up and it's a little different now for me. Um, but man, that is, Hey, that took some time. I had to build a resilient muscle Mm -hmm. to say like, this woman is actually inviting me to show up as a better human being. Mm -hmm. And she is the only one who can see these things. Mm -hmm. And if I can see her as that beautiful mirror, who's inviting me to grow into the best possible human, not for her, but for me, Mm -hmm. then I was like, Whoa. Then I saw the purpose of relationship in such a different way. Yeah. And to get back on my soapbox. Oh, sorry. Yeah, get I back think, here. Let me put that box. This is back. perfect because yeah, yeah. I'm like, how do you, how do you get that resilience without backup? Yes. Right. Yes, As a yes, guy yes, who sure. doesn't have close connections with other men, other feel, men being like, yeah, you got this. Yeah, and yeah. other men encouraging you, like, okay, man, be a little more humble, listen a little bit more, be open to seeing things differently, be Calling open you to out on your shit. Yeah, because that's what. That's what good men do for each other. Yeah. We, we stand for a little bit more than the guy himself is standing for in his life. He can't see it. Yeah. yeah and we call him to rise up. And that's we, such an important standard to have in a yeah. friendship. It's like, you have the right to call out my integrity mm-hmm. in a loving, gentle, and direct way if you need to. And in this society, the standard is, is not that, right? Yeah. This, like, 
Oh, the other thing I was going to mention about like a guy growing up is like, what's it like in your first five jobs of your life? right? You're working in these atmospheres that, you know, for me, for a lot of guys, they go try out construction, they work in a restaurant, they work somewhere where there's no emotional intelligence and where there's a lot of like- Yeah, um, I worked at a golf course. Very macho. Very macho. guys were bouncers at bars. So they would like hook up with chicks and park in the parking lot, go straight from hooking up with chicks. Mm -hmm. And I can't believe I admired these guys who were on steroids. Yeah. Where I was like, they're the epitome of man. Because they were like living the ultimate masculine celebration. Mm-hmm. Like they had big pectorals and they were hooking up with lots of chicks. But I only thought that was valuable when I saw that relationship led to deep heartbreak. Yeah. And then I was like, yeah. they have it figured out. Yeah. They're bypassing everything and yeah. just orgasming. They're getting a win. And their pectorals are huge. Yeah. It's almost a right. At this point, it's almost a rite of passage for us to uh, get lost in egoic desires or like just yeah, the image the hedonic chase yeah you know, and, and then realize like how screwed we are well and i think you know there's a bit of a trap now that's different for like a 13 year old boy or girl you know but boys especially because we're so freaking visual it's like pornography mm-hmm. you know i had to wait like seven minutes for a titty picture to load on a dial-up Me modem, too. you know, like you miserable. had to work for your porn. Yeah. You had to look at Sears catalogs and hope for the <laughs> tan of a nipple under the see-through <laughs> brazier or like National Geographic, you know, like Times we had hard. to scrape for our porn. Yeah. You know, so it was easy to not get addicted to it because you didn't have time to wait for it. Yeah. But, you know, like imagine a video, shit would have taken a week. Yeah. And my parents would have got on the computer by that time. I Anyways, got busted. I got uh, busted a bunch. Did you? It sucked. Man, but you know, it's like now you look and it's so easy to get that escape that, as you said, the escape from the feeling of not feeling like you know what you're doing, of not being studly enough, of not being, and for women too, you know, that if you don't, and I don't, you know, as kids, we're not taught to turn towards our pain. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of our teachers never turn towards our pain because they're human. Most of our parents didn't. Mm -hmm. And we inherit and inherit and inherit, and it goes down these chains of family heirlooms. Like, here, I'm going to hand you my lack of self-worth. And here's how I handle it. It's with aggression or it's with withdrawing. It's with toxicity. And it's like, I started to see my work individually. And I know you and I have talked about this before. But as it being like my responsibility to myself, but also to the healing of my family tree. Mm -hmm. And it's like, man, when was the last time men looked and women looked back at their family tree and went, oh, you like look up and you're like, Damn, you yeah. gave me some shit. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do some shit with it. Do something about it. Yeah. Because I don't want to become like my parents or I do want to become like, you know, whatever you do this, the narrative is. You want to do something better. Yeah. And that's okay. So, so because in the interest of time, man, this has been fucking fun. But I wanted to just talk about some of the work that you're doing now. Wait, we, okay. before we go, yes, there, I got yes, one yes. more thing. Okay. Yes, please. Okay. So when you were talking, I was like, I was just thinking about don't buy yet. There's more us transcending our, you know, our stories or, and, and like us getting out of this mess, right? Yeah. Getting out of this mess. Human we're, all, mess. we're all cut off from our emotions and yada, yada. The reason why men need to be in men's groups is so that we can undo that programming that you and I just talked about. That is like societal. It's the contract. You know, you never talk about your emotions and emotions aren't even okay. Like, Who's been in a room with someone where they start to have an emotion, they start to cry and they say, I'm sorry. And they feel like they're holding up the whole room, right? There's a magic moment that happens 
in our men's groups, when a, a guy comes in and he's there, it's, it's his second week and we say, hey man, we'd like you to tell us a story about your relationship with your dad. Tell us about your dad. He tells us about his dad and he talks about his relationship with his dad. And, that, and, and half the time at some point, he gets to a sticky point that, that feels kind of emotional. And sometimes he says, I'm sorry. Mm. And which always comes with a response from one of the men or a few of the men in the group, like, no, bro, no, I'm sorry for, for my emotions here. You can't be sorry for your emotions. Mm. You just feel this right now. Permission is granted. And we just like stop him. We're like, Hey, yeah. do you just stop talking for a sec? Can you just feel that for a sec? <laughs> yeah. And we go like, just, just feel this because maybe you haven't in a long time. Yeah. You know, that is like a major breakthrough in the story and, and like the programming and how it plays out. And this is why we need men's groups because in, in, in groups, there's just a higher level of personal growth, acknowledging your feelings, allowing yourself to move through them and guys standing for more for each other. And that gives you the platform that you can then like, for me, I don't know that I'd be able to handle my current relationship without my men's group. Even though I'm leading the men's group now, I don't, you know, they're, they're not like supporting me as much. I get so much energy from them and the work that we do. I know all those guys have my back. And when, when, when times are tough in my relationship, I'm able to lean in because I have that strength of the group. So, okay. That's the, that's the last time I'm on the soapbox. I agree with that though. You know, it's a, (laughs) when you are facing challenges with your partner and your partner is your emotional center, then that's way too much pressure to put on your partner. It's you unfair. Know? It's unfair. Yeah, exactly. Because you put your emotional well-being in their hands, you put your health in their hands, you put your happiness in their hands. And it should, I mean, you should never put your happiness in anyone's hands. But I think, you know, for me too, it's a lot of that is being able to turn towards people and be like, I'm struggling right now. Mm-hmm. And as a man that's and as a human, I, again, I don't want to genderize because I know there's for sure women listening who are like, I struggle too, Tons. you know? And, and so it's more like as a human, when we're struggling, especially if we spent our childhoods trying to help and save other people or like take care of everyone else, we will end up in those relationships with people who use us. We will end up in relationships where we give and give and give. And sometimes we're in relationships where we've created this dynamic where we give and give and give so that you love us back. For sure. And the other person's going like, I never told you to give all that stuff. You just like doing everything. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, I don't. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we, How did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> and so we blame them because they're the expression or the mirror of our lack of boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, but really being able to own that, oh my God, I created all this. So this is codependency, yes. right? And we could do a whole podcast on codependency. We actually should because yeah. it's one of my favorite subjects. I've, I've, it's come up recently in my life. It came up in my, in my business mastermind the other day with one of the people and like it's been frontline. And, um, I think I'm going to do a, uh, yeah, I'm going to do a podcast soon on it. So maybe you should even join us, but yeah, Melanie Beattie codependent no more. I read, I recommended that. Oh, that book yesterday slap you in the face. If you identify as an empath, read boundaries where you end and I begin and read codependent no more by Melanie Beattie. Cause they are both like, it's it's interesting because the word codependent um, carries a lot of weight with it, right? People go, mm-hmm. I don't want to be codependent. I mean, if you're anxiously attached, you're likely codependent, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, yeah. it's, it's, they're all just systematic frameworks to understand how you relate to other people, 
how we relate to other people. And there's no judgment in it. You just start to look at how to ultimately what humans do is we all have coping mechanisms for insecurity, Mm -hmm. for a lack of security in our relationships. And we learn those coping mechanisms from our families and we learn them from uh, childhood. And then we brought them into adult relationships and oddly they get results, but they just don't produce a pattern of behavior that ends up with deepening connection. And codependency is a sneaky one. Oh, it's really sneaky because patriarchy is codependency. Yeah. So like you end up in this position where there's, um, what we do when we look at a relationship that's dysfunctional is the person who's doing more harm as judged by society is the bad one. Yeah. And the other person is free from uh, any judgment. Right. And so often what that looks like it in, in, in the addict and codependent dynamic is the addict is, is the one who's acting out and has all the problems and their partner is a victim. And, and it's all about the alcoholic or the addict. Right. And for the other person, my news for you is <laughs> you like, you need to look at your own patterns. <clears throat> like if you had an alcoholic father and you have found that half of your boyfriends in the last 10 years have been alcoholics. There's something going on there. There's a repeating yeah, pattern. That's not chance. It needs to be addressed <laughs> yeah. and, and it's in you. And it's not that like, it's not that you're responsible for these guys behavior, but geez, like, I mean, but you're responsible for yours. You're unconsciously attracted to them for sure. Yeah. And right? writing something that you didn't complete, mm-hmm. you know, and it, I, That is, you know, I find that when um, I know people who are with someone who's an addict who's in recovery, often the other partner, the partner who's been trying to get them in recovery for fucking Mm -hmm. months and years and whatever, decades, all of a sudden has nothing to do. It can can really, they can sabotage the process. Yeah, because they're addicted to the need to heal and fix someone. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, and I say this with love, because I used to be the person who wanted to help everybody and and I still do. And I guess in some way I frame my work that way. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Purpose. We're all codependent. Everyone listening to this, we are in a codependent relationship. Yes. Um, But what I found is that that becomes their addiction to avoid their own work, their own self-work, their own. And that's why whenever you're dealing with an addict or anyone who you want to change, that you want their behavior to be different, you want them to aspire to their potential, Mm -hmm. you have to aspire to your own first. Mm -hmm. And that your other people's healing is your own healing. You want to change the world, change yourself. You want to revolt, revolt within. Mm -hmm. And and that's how it always begins. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, if I went and wanted to help everybody with their relationships and didn't have a good one myself, I wouldn't be able to help very much. Yeah. Not to mention my self-care would be pretty bad. I'd always be in drama cycles in yeah. partnership. Yeah. I mean, I've always been pretty blessed to be dating really loving, rational, cool, amazing women <laughs> um, who I'm <laughs> their opinion of me might be slightly different, <laughs> um, who were always trying to love me for the most part. There's a couple that I was trying to chase. And to be able to like, look at how those cycles show up, you know, I, I see all the time as a constant cycle in Instagram feedback, not, you know, about Instagram, you know, Mm -hmm. the relational patterns. It's always about people choosing unavailable people. That is Mm -hmm. the most common. Uh And I find like for men, although women do it now more as well, because they're, it's more socially acceptable for a woman to be in her sexuality. Before they had to sneak around it, they had to be, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, more covert. Mm -hmm. But men, I think we often use um, 
this might be a controversial statement, but I think we often use um, casual encounters as a way of avoiding deep intimacy. And so I think now there's this whole, you know, that's not controversial. The controversial part because <laughs> yeah. that's just fucking true. <laughs> the controversial part is that I believe a lot of the bypassing that goes towards some forms of relationship um, and polyamory is a bypassing of deeper intimacy. Not always, for but sure. A lot of the time. Yeah. Every aspect of relationship and sex can be used for a deeper purpose or it can be used to avoid something else. So totally. it, it makes perfect sense that like there's definitely a ton of people out there using polyamory because it seems like the easiest solution spiritual to a problem, yeah. <laughs> but not necessarily uh, if it's just not going to pan out because it's actually not the easiest solution to most problems. And um, it's really, really hard. Just like unconscious. So, um, and I say unconscious with, with love because I'm, we're always in some form of unconscious. Um, and I say that about myself too, is like, unconscious or lack of relational awareness will repeat the same cycles in monogamy too. It's not that one yeah, form of relationships sure. better than the other, just that it is very much easier to bypass within open relationships. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. run from your pain. So man, we've got, so apparently we got a whole podcast on codependency. We're gonna do, <laughs> although we just grazed on that shit right it's now, really, that was which is great because I, it relates so much to addiction, yeah. right? And and so don't worry, guys. In the show notes, you will have all of these resources. The thing I want people to um, leave with, though, is where they can find you. So mm -hmm. evolvingman.ca. Yep. Ben is also not just limited by geography and good old Vancouver. Um, he's also started online men's groups. Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, I run a squad for the Samurai Brotherhood, which is in Vancouver only. And actually, I think we have one squad. We do have one squad on Vancouver Island right now. But so it's it's, slow, it's spreading slowly geographically, but I'm pioneering the online group. Uh, and we're going to see if we can make it work online, which I'm actually quite confident we can. I think you can. Yeah. yeah if we, if, yeah, we're just going to adapt things in the right way and keep the groups the right size. And, um, so I'm starting the first online Samurai Brotherhood group and that will be probably live by the time the podcast goes live. Perfect. So, you so can, we'll have the link out to that in the mm -hmm. show notes, everyone. If you go to, uh, Ben's website, evolvingman.ca, uh, you'll yep. have a page on there about yep. it too. I'll have a page on there. The other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to start, uh, a, a, a men's group again for addiction specific stuff. And this is more for, you know, leveling up or, or, turbocharging your addiction recovery. It could be used for guys who are in their earlier phases. Um, but generally I recommend that people who are in their early phase of recovery, like get to treatment and they get to some in-person stuff. This is more like me sharing what I learned in my, you know, from year 10 to year, whatever I'm at now, like 18 yeah. or something. Right. So those later years where I moved beyond my initial work with the 12 steps and I went deeper into my spiritual work and I, um, I addressed my addictive patterns that were still sort of hanging on by fingernails in my life. So for guys who they've started their recovery process, but they need like an extra level, um, more support. Yeah. I, you know, we do group support, accountability stuff, continue digging into, um, the emotional work and, uh, connect deeper to, to spiritual, uh, methods and, uh, generally just, just dig in further and expose those addictive patterns. I even integrate some of the conscious relationship work that I've been doing with 
uh, Shalina, where um, that's his partner, my partner. Yeah, and we do some shadow work. So basically, like, yeah, if you want to level up, do do a deeper dig on your addictive patterns. This is, this is it. Thanks for coming in and and sharing all of this knowledge that you have and some of your story. And it's always good to jam with you. And um, people definitely check out his podcast, Evolving Man. He's got uh, all sorts, an array of guests and very insightful. So thanks a lot, my brother. Thank you, my man. Love I love, you, what, man. love what you're doing here. And I'm really happy that, uh, that we could do this together. So thank you very Me much. Too.